If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to Joshua chapter 2. We're journeying through the book of Joshua. If you don't have a Bible and there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there, please feel free to go grab one. And um, you can borrow it if you need to borrow it. If you need a Bible that you can use uh, and, and just take with you and read because you don't have one that you can read and understand, that's a great translation. Please feel free to, please feel free to uh, take that with you. It's our gift. I'm going to try to do something this morning that's not normal for me, and so I want you to know that, uh, and that is preach a one-point sermon. Uh, this is such... <laughs> I hate all you people. All right. Uh, this is such a great story uh, that unfolds here in Joshua chapter 2, and so um, what I want to do is just, I want to read the story, make a couple of comments along the way, try to drive home the singular point that I think this story is telling us, and then we'll, um, then we'll uh, get ready and, and celebrate communion, okay? So in Joshua chapter 2, and uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, this is verse 1, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now just pause for just a second. That's, you know, there's a lot in verse 1. But really, this is about an intro, okay? This is about telling us what's gone down. Um, lots of people get lost in the weeds here. Let's not get lost in the weeds. Well, did Joshua ask God if he should send spies? Uh, I don't know. It doesn't say. Does it? Does it say? It doesn't. Well, they went and lodged at Rahab's house. So... That's a little shady. Um, did they? Didn't they? Does it say? It doesn't say. Um, here's the thing. The, the places where the Bible speaks, we want to speak. The reason it doesn't talk about um, you know, some of the details that you may or may not want filled in in verse 1 is because that's not the point of the story. Some people can get lost in the weeds on stuff like this, and, and God wants us to hear uh, what he's trying to say through this story. Don't get lost in the weeds. That's what I'm saying. Uh, just as, a, uh, as an example... Um, in the, uh, right, right before God set the world on fire through a guy named Martin Luther uh, with, in the Reformation in the 1500s, um, there was a, a movement in Christianity called scholasticism. And one of the big questions that scholasticism was trying to answer was, how many angels can dance on the head or stand on the head of a pen? Anybody? Does anybody care, Right. There were important reasons. I'm sure that they asked the question, and I'm sure they had reasons for trying to find an answer. Here's the thing, though. That's not the point, is it? And in this case, uh, if Joshua did or did not consult the Lord, if they did or didn't, Rahab, the whole thing, uh, that's not the point of this, okay? So just don't, people, they, this is what they say. Don't you care about theology? Don't you care about morality? Don't you care about what the Bible says? Yes, I absolutely care about theology and morality and what the Bible says. I care so much that I want it to speak where it speaks, and I want it to just let it be where, it, where, it's, where it's silent. Um, I don't want to be guessing at what the Bible's not saying. I want to be grappling with what the Bible is saying. And that's what we want to do here, okay? Don't get lost in the weeds, because the story gets weirder from here. But let's find the main point, and let's listen to what the chapter says. Okay, all oh, that's intro. Okay, verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here, tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. 
But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, true, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Should Rahab have lied? Should she not have? All it's doing is reporting what happened here. Verse 6. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she went up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know, listen to this statement, I know that, that the Lord has given you the land. Joshua sent them in to figure out oh, what, what's the deal here. And Rahab saying, I know that the Lord's given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us here and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Verse 11. We're going to come back to this verse in a minute. Just make sure you mark it. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit, literally no breath, nothing was left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then, then when, not if, then when, when the Lord gives the land, we will surely uh, deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall. That's an important detail. Don't miss that. So that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of ours, uh, of yours that you've made us swear. Behold, when we come into this land, not if, when we come into this land, <clears throat> you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. Little threat there. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. Verse 20. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to our oath, to your oath, that you have made us swear. Again, a threat. Verse 21. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed, went into the hills, remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. And then the two men returned, and they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And then they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land. They melt away because of us. What a great story. Here's the single point today. God is in pursuit of outsiders. That's it. You look at all the things that have happened, 
all the history that has happened up to this point in the Old Testament. You've got um, God bringing Abraham out of Ur, establishing a people, them going down to Egypt, being in captivity in Egypt, God delivering them by the mighty hand uh, of his working and miracles and power, bringing them through the Red Sea, 40 years wandering in the wilderness here. Um, You've got then them coming to the edge of the Jordan, the transition of leadership between Moses to Joshua. You got all of this stuff happening, and suddenly there's a lady in Jericho who now knows what God is doing in the world. God is in, how is that possible? Because God is in pursuit of outsiders. He is writing his story. He is telling his story. He is unfolding his plan on the earth. And he is consistently and constantly looking to rescue outsiders and then write them into the story that he's telling. Rahab, she's the consummate, I mean, absolute consummate outsider. How does God reveal, I mean, excuse me, how does God pursue them? How does he rescue them? He reveals himself to them. He reveals who he is, and he reveals what he's done. This is verse 11 back. Um, We've heard about you and the Red Sea and the kings you've devoted to destruction. And then, again, we're going to come back to this in a minute, but look at verse 11. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. God has shown Rahab what he has done, and he has shown her who he is, even to this consummate outsider. Let's just work on this consummate outsider thing for a minute. Rahab, Jew or Gentile? Gentile, you know what that means? Not part of the people of God. Outsider. Male or female? Female. What does that mean? In those days, especially in Canaanite religion, or excuse me, Canaanite culture, we're talking about a second or potentially even third-class citizen. So she's Gentile, strike one, female, strike two. The way that females got status was they married and had kids. Was Rahab married? No. When she's listing out, hey, would you save me and my father's household? Husband didn't make the list. Did she have kids? No. No kids made the list. Me and my kids, would you say? No, that's not. So Gentile, strike one. Female, strike two. Unmarried and no kids, strikes three and four. Just to push this a little bit further, strike five. What was her profession? Don't say it out loud. You get it, okay? There's little ears in the room. Don't want to cause questions later. And strike six. Where did she live? Not just on the wall, in the wall of the city. I mean, literally on the margins of her society. She is the consummate outsider. If you have your Bible, flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to look at this passage quickly, but it's such a great passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 8, but we're going to read down um, through a a good portion of the chapter. If you know any verses in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, that's probably it. Uh, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's in pursuit of outsiders, and how does he do that? He does that by grace through faith. Not by making outsiders earn their way, but by God saving them. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Camp in the city counselors, just quickly. God's prepared good works for you this week that you should walk in them. That's good news. Verse 11, this is where I wanted to get. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, he could be writing this about Rahab, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, that's a human-made deal. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time, listen to this description, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a devastating description of an outsider. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Outside, no hope, no God. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm an outsider. This is true of Rahab. And listen, this is true of you and me. Before, um, before we came to know Christ, if you're in the room this morning and you've put your trust in Jesus, this was true of you. You were outside of the covenants. You were outside of the promises. You were outside of a relationship with God. We were all outsiders. Every one of us was. And then thankfully, look what happens, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Rahab was the consummate outsider. We were too. We were the ones separated from God. We were the ones out of relationship. We were the ones disconnected from him. And what does God do? God is in pursuit of the outsiders, and he brings the outsiders near to him through Jesus. That's what he says. Those who've been far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So some sit here, and I know, I know this. Listen, <laughs> I'm not Rahab. Like, you know, I grew up at church. Like I was born in the lobby of the church. Weird, but I mean, it made it for a good story, you know? And I learned all 66 books of the Bible. Uh, by the time I was four, even the ones I couldn't pronounce, I knew how to pronounce I mean, like, and I went through, and I could sing the third verse of every song and all that. I mean, I could do all the things. Like, I, I'm not an outsider. I'm more like a, I, I mean, really, if anybody's an insider, I'm an insider. The problem is, is that there are no insiders. Every one of us is an outsider. And you may have grown up in a religious home, so maybe we'll call you an other-sider, but you're not an insider. That's what he says, continue on in Ephesians 2. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Verse 14, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. In other words, he's going to make a new person out of both Jew and Gentile, so making peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile, listen to this, don't miss it, and might reconcile what? Us both, Jew, Gentile. Outsider, other sider. He might reconcile us both. Every one of us is in need of reconciliation to God. He might reconcile us both uh, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God brings the outsiders near, to, near through Christ. God brings the other siders near to him through Christ. This is the, well, I mean, again, I'm not so sure. Okay, so there are people who grew up and their lives were marked by unrighteousness, meaning that they were absolutely in love with their sin. That's Rahab. <clears throat> That's people who didn't grow up around church. Oh, they were in love with their sin. And what does God do? He rescues them. He reveals himself to them by showing who he is and what he's done for them through Jesus. And he rescues these outsiders and brings them near to him by the blood of cross, by the blood of Christ. And so, and then they're um 
not unrighteous people, but there are self-righteous people. People who are in love with themselves. You got sin lovers and you got self-lovers. People who say, oh, well, I grew up around church, this kind of thing, right? Um, you, you've got in the story of the prodigal son, you've got the son who goes way far off and blows all of this inheritance on wild living and craziness. And then you've got the son who does what? Who stays at home, is a dutiful son, but is mad about it. People who love their sin and people who love themselves. Well, how do I know which way I lean? How do I know which way I'm inclined? People who are unrighteous and that kind of is in their wiring and upbringing and that kind of thing, they lean towards pleasure, not piety. They lean towards pleasure. You look at their lives and it's constant pursuit of, uh, of feeling good. People who are self-righteous, though, they lean towards appearance and not authenticity. So, a little confessional moment here. Grew up at First Baptist Huntsville. I mean, like, First Baptist. White Corinthian columns outside, red brick sanctuary, the whole thing, right? When I was a kid, um, when I wasn't crawling under the pews and popping up in different places and getting the evil eye for, from my mom in the choir loft, um, that's a true story, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> no ideas. I'm not passing out ideas. I'm just saying that's a true story. Um, when, when, and there were good and godly people there, and God did good things there. But there were things that even I, as a kid growing up, <clears throat> I knew this, that there were people who were fighting in the car, and as soon as they stepped out of the car or onto church property, here comes the smiles, right? And you always had to wear your Sunday best. That was the thing. It was all not, it, there was a lot of appearance that, that, that showed up in that area. And, and when and there was ugly stuff that went on, and people would do this. They would just pick up the carpet. Okay, we're good now. We can move on. I mean, this is the environment in which I grew up, so much so that when my dad torpedoed our family with some of the choices that he made, the church kind of picked up the carpet. Okay, we're back to it now. They didn't thunder and say, this is wrong. They swept it under the carpet and say, okay, we can go back. Appearances mattered. People who grew up around religion, people who grew up around that kind of cultural religion, especially, they, they focus on and lean, if you will, towards appearances. And guess what? That's a struggle for me. I lean towards appearances. So it matters then whether you are unrighteous and lean towards pleasure or self-righteous and lean towards appearance. You can identify that, but the, here's what matters more. You're both unrighteous, self-righteous, both in need of God's rescue. The prodigal son who went far away, the father had to go out to him. The son who stayed home who was angry when the party was going on, guess what the father did? Went out to him. The father has to pursue them both. So God is in the business of pursuing outsiders, rescuing outsiders. Whether you're self-righteous or unrighteous, both are outsiders. Separated from God, and he has to, to go out to them. And that, that leads me to this question. Who, who then are the outsiders that you and I know? Who are the outsiders that we know? Who are the people who are, who are distant from God, separated from God, disconnected from God because of something that's gone on in their life or because of something that they've chosen to do? How then is God going to use us, use us to pursue them? How will God use us to pursue them? We've talked about this as a church, and I just re-emphasize this um, with this little graphic here, um, that we build our um, outreach strategy around these kind of three tiers, the baseline expectation of everybody in our church is that we would have a culture of invitation. 
There would be a sense in which we are consistently inviting people to church. Hey, do you go to church anywhere? Anywhere regularly? Uh, no, not really. And then you should come check out, see what God's doing here. There's just baseline expectation that we would be good inviters. We've got cards on the back back there. You can take with you, hand out, whatever. But we would just invite people regularly to see what God's doing here. And that often opens up a, a, a door by which then we get to tell our story. We get to say, hey, because I want to tell you something. Here's how God's been good to me. Here's how he's protected me. Here's how he um, has sustained me in the middle of suffering and hardship. Here's the way that he has uh, moved in my life. Here's the way that he has worked. Here's the way he's um, uh, ironed out a relationship that was very difficult and on and on and on and on. Here are the ways that God has done this. We get the opportunity to tell our story. And then that often leads to the culmination, which is what we want to get to. We get to share the gospel. And the reason uh, <clears throat> I'm here today to tell you, as you're talking about, have you, you go to church anywhere? Let me tell you what God's done in my life. The reason I'm, I, I want to talk to you about this is because I want you to know that Jesus loves you too. No matter what your past is, Jesus loves you, and he has died for you, and he has given his life for you, and he has come back from the dead to give you a new kind of life. Do you want to participate in it? You can turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. That we would have the opportunity to share the gospel. Culture of invitation. Tell your story and share the gospel. Uh, in order for this to happen, a couple of things to remember. One is God's at work in all kinds of peoples, uh, in all kinds of people, and in all kinds of circumstances. Remember that. I mean, who would have expected to show up in Jericho, bump into Rahab, and find somebody who, uh, in whom God had done something? God's at work in all kinds of people um, and in all kinds of ways. Secondly, one of the things that we have to do is get past our first impressions. Does first impression color anybody else, too? I mean, does, you know, you get there and you're like, eh. We have to get past our first impressions. And thirdly, we have to remember that every place, every place that we set foot is our mission field. Every place that we set foot is our mission field. So whether you're going to work this week, whether you're going to the grocery store this week, the soccer field this week, the baseball field this week, whether you're working camp in the city this week, listen, God is at work in all kinds of people and in all kinds of ways. And, and he is uh, the places where you step, those places are your mission field. When? When we have the opportunity to step out um, and to, to be a part of what God's doing around, uh, to be a part of his pursuit of an outsider, three things happen. Here they are. Number one, uh, there, there's a, one of the results is there's a shift, if you will, a change in allegiance. There's a change in allegiance. I want to go back here to um, Joshua chapter 2 and look at verse 11 again. Look at verse 11, the end of verse 11, that statement of faith here that... that uh, that Rahab said, the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She had grown up in this culture. In Canaanite worship and in Canaanite culture, uh, there were two, there was kind of like a mom and a dad God. You had El who was the dad God, uh, the mom God, <clears throat> excuse me, the mom God was Atherat. Everybody's up to speed on that, right? Me either, until I studied that this week. But you had mom, dad God and mom God, and they had basically three offspring. Baal, Baal's somebody you heard of, right? He's the god of the storm. Yom, Yom is the god of the sea. And then Mot, Mot is the god of the underworld. And this is the, this is the, the pantheon, if you will, that, that Rahab grew up with. And what's her confession? These yahoos, they don't know what they're doing. You're God. 
the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your God, Yahweh, Jehovah, he is the God who is above the heavens and on the earth beneath. He's got all of this. Not these little bitty play guys. No, no, no. God's got all of this. Your God, he's got all of this. That's a statement of faith. That's a statement of allegiance. Furthermore, the very people that we think least capable of hearing and responding to the gospel might be the very ones that God is at work in to transform their lives. Camp in the city, folks. The very kid that you think might be the absolute worst one that you're going to pull your hair out about may be the one that God is at work in. And their faith will grow. Just pause. This is something we need to understand. There, there are no first-round draft picks, right? Like, look, look down your row. None of you are first-rounders when it comes to God, okay? That's the thing. It's important to remember that. Why? Because God is at work in people that you don't expect. You, me, all those kind of people. Um, when he goes to work, their faith is going to grow. It's going to develop. It'll be a little messy at first. Why? Because they're young in the faith. They're kids in the faith. How many of you still have kids in high chairs when they eat? Do you know what goes on underneath and in the high chair? There is stuff that NASA is studying right now that they scooped right out of a high chair. I'm convinced of this. It's messy. Why? Because they're young and they're growing. Rahab, her faith is young and it's growing, and so there's all these things that we wish would be cleaner. But the truth is she has a young faith, and so it's growing, it's developing. What she did have was this. There, your God, this God, the God of Israel, he's above and he's below. He's got this whole thing figured out, and I want to put my allegiance with him. She had that part figured out, and that's, that's good. Secondly, not only an allegiance to him, but also um, the, the second result is a commitment to his people. A commitment to his people. What does Rahab do? She hides the spies. She deflects attention and makes sure that they go off. She gives them a plan of escape. And then she lets them down through this window with this scarlet cord. And they say, hey, here's the sign back. Uh, you put that scarlet cord in your window. That's going to be the sign. Here's the crazy part. There's no perfect people in this story. Rahab, not perfect. Spies, not perfect. Church, not perfect. No perfect people. But, and the commitment that, that uh, results from God revealing himself and changing people's lives, the commitment to his people that results is not because they're so great people. We don't love the people around us because they're so lovable. We love them because Jesus has loved us and is unleashing his love through us to the world around us. This commitment, it will absolutely come at a cost to you. If you love the people of God, at some point it will cost you something. Certainly it did with the spies. Certainly it did with Rahab. There's a huge risk involved with what they were doing. But it will always be worth it. It will always be worth it. The, the thing that binds us together, if you will, that bound Rahab together with the spies was the scarlet thread. And the, the thing that ties us together is the this, is this scarlet thread. Not, not a literal colored rope, but a, something that binds us together that's blood-bought. That's what, that's what uh, Paul said in Ephesians 2, right? God made the two into one new man. How? By destroying the hostility through the cross. The red that covers us, that covers our sins and unites us. The red is the only color that matters. There's a commitment to His people. And lastly, uh, this is some of the best part. There's a brand, 
There's a brand new story. When God reveals himself, an allegiance, a shift in allegiance happens, and a commitment to his people, and then God starts writing a brand new story. When, this is, this is true of everybody in here, your past, it may shape you, but it doesn't have to define you. Your past may shape you, but it doesn't have to define you. It did not for Rahab, because the future of Rahab looked like this. Um, Jericho ends up falling in Joshua 6. We'll get there in a few weeks. <clears throat> Jericho ends up falling. Rahab and her family are saved. Rahab marries a, a guy from the tribe of Judah named Salmon. Anybody? Okay. Rahab marries a guy from the tribe of Judah named Salmon. They have a kid who has a kid who has a kid, and that puts Salmon and Rahab in the line of the, of the, uh, of the Messiah that comes. Rahab, the outsider, the Gentile, female, unmarried, childless, prostitute who lives at the margins of society, God writes into the story such that she becomes the great-great-great-grandparent of David the king and in the line of the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 1, she's one of five women listed, five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. James, Mr. Morals and Ethics, and the, and the half-brother of Jesus, he comes along and calls her righteous Rahab because she hid the spies. She shows up in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith and all of that stuff. Where there's all these famous people, Rahab's right there. Your past, it will certainly shape you, but listen to me, it does not have to define you. All the sin and all the shame that you've carried that the enemy would want to load up on you and make you walk around with, you don't have to carry anymore. Why? Because Jesus has carried our sin and he has borne our shame. There is therefore now no condemnation, as in zero, none, zip, zilch, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you and I put our trust in Jesus and we repent of our sin and are embraced by him, listen, God puts a period at the end of one chapter of our lives and turns the page and begins writing a brand new story. And it is a story far bigger and far greater and far wilder than any, you can, any that you and I could come up with. Who would have guessed Rahab and Joshua 2 would end up in the line of the Messiah in Matthew 1? True for her, true for you. When the cross comes in to play, when this begins to happen in your life and in mine, and when it becomes a reality in our life, and God can do unbelievable stuff, stuff that we never, ever, ever would imagine. He loves a good plot twist. Jesus goes down into the grave and people think it's all over. Three days later, plot twist. He's done it in Rahab's life. He did it when he raised Jesus from the dead. He'll do it in your life too. That's what we come to remember when we come to celebrate communion. God has written a story. He wants to include us in it. And so when you come to the table here in just a moment, because I know we have so many visitors, I'll explain how we'll do this. But when you come to the table in just a moment, you hold those elements, you remember who you were, alienated, separated from God, an outsider, and you remember that God has brought you near by the blood of Christ. And you are now His. You are now His. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pray. Uh, there will be deacons who station themselves at the, um, at the tables. And uh, again, because I know there are so many visitors here. This is the way we do communion. And <clears throat> when we have tables set up like this, we, we'll just invite you at your own pace. We don't have to be in a hurry here, but at your own pace, uh, you come and you celebrate. 
We encourage you not to come alone. If you came with somebody else, man, feel free to come along. We want you to celebrate with them, remember with them. You come, get the elements, you can take them back to your seat or just step to the side uh, and have a time of prayer, reflection, and then celebrate um, communion, okay? If you have anything that you need to pray about, the guys who are stationed at the tables, they would love to pray with you about that. Let me pray, and then we'll celebrate together, okay?